0: I would ask if you could uh, please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord. I'm going to be focusing this morning on Exodus 20 verses 4 to 6, but I'm going to read uh, the whole uh, of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together as we, we commit our time studying the word to God. Almighty God, you say of Israel that you have not dealt thus with any other nation, that you would show them your will through your word. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have fulfilled all of your holy law. And in Christ, you have called us to worship you as Lord Jesus. You are the image of God. Lord, we thank you that as your people, you have given us your word, which clearly reveals to us your will and your character. And Lord, we pray that as we approach your Holy Word this morning, as we we consider what it means to worship you rightly, Lord, we confess that we cannot do this in our own strength. Lord, we cannot come even close to worshiping you unless you work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that as your Word is proclaimed this morning, that you would do this, that you would work in accordance with your word by the power of your spirit. And Lord cause worship to rise up in our hearts. Help us almighty God to worship you rightly. Lord to grow in our ability and our understanding of what it means to worship you as you are calling us to do. Lord help us to to so delight in you, to be so devoted to you that worship comes as naturally to us as breathing. For Lord, you are worthy, you alone are worthy of all our praise and all our adoration. And We ask these things confident that you will work according to the promises you have given us in your word. For we ask this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. As the 2.5 million people of Israel gathered together around the foot of Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses, reminding him of all that God had done for the people of Israel in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. God promised that if the people kept his covenant, that they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation the people answered, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so the Lord told Moses to have the people consecrate themselves, for he would come and speak to them. And there was thunder and lightning, a trumpet blast, smoke and a great earthquake. And the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments in the hearing of the people. The people were terrified and told Moses to speak to them, not God. For they feared that they would die. And then the Lord called Moses back up the mountain and gave him more detailed commandments, confirmed the covenant, and gave specifications for the tabernacle, for its furnishings, and for the priesthood and the sacrifices. And once the Lord had finished speaking with Moses, the Lord gave him two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments inscribed with the very finger of God. And then we get to Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down the mountain, they came before Moses and told him to make gods to go before them. And Aaron told them to give, them, to give him the gold rings from their ears, and he then fashioned the gold into a golden calf. And the people declared, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron built an altar before the golden calf, and proclaimed, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And the people made offerings before the calf and had a debaucherous celebration. And the Lord told Moses to go down, for the people had corrupted themselves. And Moses confronted Aaron, who made the lame excuse I asked the people for the people's gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And Moses called for the sons of Levi to execute capital punishment on the offenders. Three thousand died in that day, but they all would have been consumed by the Lord's wrath, was it not for Moses' intercession. At the very time that Moses was in the process of receiving the stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments, the people were engaging in idolatry. But notice that in their idolatry, they weren't worshiping a false god. They were worshiping the Lord. Aaron declared in Exodus 32 5, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's Yahweh. He was saying that they would hold a feast to the Lord, and the Lord was this golden calf. They they were worshiping the right God, but they were worshiping him in the wrong way. When the Apostle Paul waited for Silas and Timothy in Athens in Acts 17, he was incensed when he saw that the city was full of idols. I wonder how many idols, how many golden calves there are in churches around this city this morning. I wonder if there are any idols or golden calves in this church. I wonder if there are any idols or golden calves in your worship. Friends, we are all worshipers. But the question must be asked, do we worship rightly? Do we worship the right God in the right way? Paul Washer said in his 10 indictments against the modern church that Sunday morning is the greatest hour of idolatry in the entire week of America because people are not worshiping the one true God. The great mass, at least, but they're worshiping a God formed out of their own hearts, by their own flesh, satanic devices, and worldly intelligence. They have made a God just like themselves, and he looks more like Santa Claus than he does Yahweh. God is jealous for the glory of his name. In Romans 1, 18 and following, the, the, we're warned by the apostle Paul that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That, that they are not, they're without excuse because even, even natural revelation is revealed to them that there is a God and, and, and what he is like. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and and creeping things. And it's for this reason that God has given them up to all sorts of perverted lusts and and wickedness. But if natural revelation brings indictment on false worship, how much more does the special revelation of Holy Scripture? The Ten Commandments are explicit in their instructions on worship. And as you said, the the Ten Commandments as a codified law for for Israel have been abrogated. That, That as a codified law, they do not have an ongoing requirement for us as Christians but as the reflection of the moral law that is written on our hearts that, that, that is a reflection of the holiness and the righteous character of God as an ongoing requirement for us to understand what God's will is for us as believers. The Ten Commandments have an ongoing role in our lives to direct and to guide our worship. So the first table of the commandments deals mainly with our relationship with God. And the second table deals mainly with our relationship with our fellow men and women. As I said to the kids, the first commandment is about worshiping the right God. And the second commandment is about worshiping the right God in the right way worshiping the right God in the wrong way is another form of idolatry every bit as much as worshiping the wrong God in fact it really is a form of idolatry it's saying that something is God when it isn't the way that we worship says a lot about us and about our beliefs Now, in this church we're very careful in what we sing the issue isn't between Traditional and contemporary. There there are some really bad traditional hymns, and there are some really good contemporary ones. But if you're focusing on your preferences to the rejection of other forms, you are you are actually breaking the second commandment. You're not loving and worshiping God. You're worshiping your preferences. We simply want our worship music to be God glorifying and biblical. And our music is only one part of our worship. What we sing and and how we sing is important, but also what we pray and how we pray. What's preached and how it's preached and how the preaching is received and, and lived out all speak volumes about us. But far more importantly than that, what we worship says a lot about God. What we worship says a lot about God. Roger Scruton in his book Modern Philosophy insightfully pointed out that, that God is defined in the act of worship far more precisely than he is defined by any theology. And this is why the forms of ceremony are so important. He says that changes in liturgy, ta- liturgy take on momentous significance for the believer that are for, for that are changes in their experience of God. The liturgy, the the way that we worship God, changes our experience of who God is. And so we are very conscious of what our corporate worship communicates. This is why we're moving towards a gospel-shaped liturgy that culminates in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We're moving towards a celebration of the Lord's Supper every week because we believe that that this is the the high point. This is the the, the most important thing that we do as a church is to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So it's something that we want to do every week. I wonder what does your worship say about you? And what does your worship say about God? Do you come to the Lord's Day service with your, your heart prepared? having prayed for yourself, having prayed for your church, with with your sins repented of, with with any conflict resolved, well-rested, eagerly anticipating the opportunity to worship God with your church family. Is that how you see the Sunday service? Is your worship thoughtful, joyful, exuberant, engaged? And it's not just Sunday mornings, but in the fellowship time after the service, When you drive home, when you go to work or school, or or your times with the family that week, are you worshiping God as he has prescribed in his word, or are you breaking the second commandment? But before we get into the prohibitions of the second commandment, of of what is forbidden, let's look at what is required. Remember the words of John Colquhoun, where a duty is required, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is required. So then what is required in obedience to the second commandment? Again the second commandment tells us that we we must worship the right God in the right way. This commandment commands true worship. False worship is forbidden and true worship is required. And this command then not not to make images of God and and not to worship them represents the requirements for all worship. I like Daniel Block's definition of true worship. He says, true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. So the worshiper is, is reverent, genuinely adoring God. The worshiper is submitted to God. The worshiper bows before God. And all of, of this worship is, is guided by what God has prescribed for us in his word. Question 56 of the Baptist Catechism asks, what is required in the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. I want to talk about the particular duties in a moment, but I want to focus now on the fact that true worship is guided by God's word. The 1689 Baptist Confession develops this further, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. God has decreed that the acceptable way of worshiping him has been revealed to us in his all-sufficient word. Furthermore, the Bible condemns all worship that is not prescribed by God, not commanded by Him in His Word. This, this is known as the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle says that true worship is regulated by God's Word. True worship in, includes only what is commanded. This is contrasted with the normative principle of worship in, any, in which anything that is not forbidden is allowed. And I believe that many of the practices in the modern church are a testimony to the error of the normative principle. Now, people can get really legalistic about the regulative principle. They can get legalistic about the normative principle too. But the regulative principle is not meant to handcuff worship. It's meant to facilitate it. It provides, as Kevin DeYoung says, freedom from cultural captivity, freedom from weekly novelties, and freedom from man-made ideas and preferences. The the regulative principle is meant to guide and to direct worship so that it's pleasing to God. Just think back for a moment to, to prior to getting married, when you were engaged, to the person who's now your spouse. You carefully studied your fiance's interests and desires. You you looked for ways that that would communicate your love and that would, would bring joy to the object of your love. Now sure you got it wrong sometimes, but you were so eager to get it right. And now after many years of marriage, Your spouse has clearly communicated what feels loving again and again and again, and you ignore that or or do things your own way. And in so doing, you're showing that you don't really love your spouse as you should. Well, if that's true of your relationship with your spouse, how much more with your relationship with God? who has clearly communicated how he wants you to love him in his word. You get to worship God. You get to worship God. Just stop and think about this for a minute. You are sinful. I am sinful. But God has invited us. In fact, God has commanded that we come to him And worship him you and I have the privilege of being an intimate relationship with the all-sovereign God you get to know and to glorify the all-glorious God you get to approach the holy 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 God you get to do something now that you're going to be doing for all eternity you get to join with the heavenly beings that the day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4:8. You get to cry out now with the 24 elders who fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and cast their crowns before him. Declaring, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4.11. This is your privilege. This isn't just a duty. This is a glorious privilege that has been purchased for you by Christ. So how are you to worship? How are, how are you to worship, as, especially thinking here as we, as we, gather, as we gather together? What, how should our worship reflect the glory of God? <sighs> well, when we come together as a church, God's word is the, is the measure, the standard by which our worship is, is, is to be compared. Our our, our standard—we seek to grow in this. The the church is is reformed, but continually reforming. That's why there's there's things that we're constantly doing as as we as things come to light in God's word to say, what how can we do what we're doing better? How can we glorify God more in our worship? But worship isn't just about singing. It's all of life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Or Revelation or rather Romans 12 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and hear this, which is your spiritual worship worship is all of life obedience to the commandment and involves not just forsaking the sins forbidden but also the performance of the contrary duties the Westminster larger catechism goes into more detail here than the Baptist catechism It includes 10 specific duties as obedience to the second commandment the receiving observing and keeping Pure and entire, all religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in His Word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. Two, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the Word. Three, the administration and receiving of the sacraments. Four, church government and discipline. And five, the ministry and maintenance of the same. Six, religious fasting. Seven, swearing by the name of God. Eight, vowing to Him. Nine, also the disproving, detesting, opposing of all false worship. And ten, according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry. More could be added here. There's a lot more things you could say about about what your duties of worship are. But this gives you sense of the, the full orb, all of life, essence of worship. But obedience to the command means not just that these things are to be done, but they're to be done in certain ways, from a right heart. True worship is exuberant. It's it's not viewed as just merely a duty, but a high privilege. Listen to Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. it's not distracted it's it's focused on the object of your worship i wonder can you can you stand there distractedly with your hands in your pockets jingling change while we sing the hallelujah chorus or any of the other glorious songs that we sing jesus quotes isaiah 29:13 and in, in matthew 15:8 this people honors me with their lips but their hearts is far from me. I I pray that this could never be said of of any of us. But the reality is that it can, can't it? Think even of the the, the hymns that we sang this morning. Was your mind fully engaged? Were, Were you loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength? No, of course not. None of us have. None of us can do that. But we strive towards that. That's what true worship is. True worship is joyful. Five times in the Psalms, we're told to make a joyful noise to the Lord. See, even if you've got a bad voice, you can still make a joyful noise. Seventeen times, we're, we're told to shout for joy. Christian, you have been granted eternal life with christ if that's not a reason to shout for joy i don't know what is how many of us would would go to a, a hockey game or a football game and, and jump up when when our team scores a, a goal or a touchdown but don't express any joy virtually in the praise of our lord True worship is grounded in the truth of God's word. This is what we're coming back to again in the, the regulative principle. Edward Fisher says in the, the Marrow of Modern Divinity that God requires that you shall worship me only and purely according to my revealed will in my word. Psalm one hundred forty five eighteen. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who worship him in truth. We must worship him in truth in truth. John 4.24. John 4.24 also says that because God is spirit, true worship is spiritual. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Anything less than this is not true worship. And that takes us to what is forbidden. Well what is forbidden in in obedience to the second commandment? There are two specific prohibitions given here in this commandment. One, we are not to make any images to represent God, Exodus 24, and two, we are not to worship any images, Exodus 25a. So one, we're not to make any images to represent God. Now the words um, image and likeness are are two terms that are a very similar meaning and they're they're repeated there together in order to, to emphasize the point that God is making. Both terms refer to idols, in this case, false images of God. God is spirit and is not to be represented physically. Now, the command is not against making statues or paintings in general. God is not against art. After all, the temple was full of of artistic representation of of plants and, and angels and so on. Hercules Collins writes in his Orthodox Catechism. uh, It's a Baptistic adaptation of the Heidelberg Confession. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. James White, someone who's familiar to many of you here, says that the true worship must worship God as He exists, not as we wish Him to be. The essence of idolatry, he says, is making images of God. And He says an image is a shadow, a false representation. So, so do you see what these men are, are saying? Th- they're saying that, that creating an image of God limits God. It, it It's saying that that something infinitely less than God represents God. God cannot and must not be portrayed in a statue, a painting, a drawing, a stained glass window, or any physical representation. Neither can he be represented by a geometric pattern. I find it so bizarre that the, the triquetra, the so-called trinity knot of, of the three linked circles is used to represent the trinity. Not only is the trinity impossible to be represented. If you remember, we saw that as we, we talked to, to the children about illustrations that are, are used to represent the trinity and how each one of them falls short. And if you follow it out, each one of them individually will lead to heresy. But not only is is the Trinity impossible to represent and forbidden to be represented, but but that symbol, the triquetra, triquetra, is actually used quite often in the occult. No illustration can ever portray any part of the Godhead. You cannot and must not make any images of God. The Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches are full of these images. Iconography is blasphemy. Their the justification is that, that images are laymen's books, helping them to teach the things of God. Well, Thomas Watson points out that, that they view that, that it's often more effective than even teaching from books. He talks about how one of the popish councils affirmed that, that we might learn more by an image than by a long study of scriptures. The Roman Catholics pointed out that that most people at that time, when they were were bringing these things out, they they couldn't read. So they could teach people, they said, about Christianity from images. The reformers countered that we must teach the people. We must teach the people. And one of the most glaring and egregious examples of this in Roman Catholicism is the crucifix, where where Jesus is represented as hanging on the cross. This is wrong in so many ways and on so many levels. Not only is that not Jesus, but Jesus isn't there. Jesus is no longer on the cross just as much as he is no longer in the grave. It is finished. He is risen. Hallelujah. Then this takes us to another question, maybe one that you haven't really considered before. Is it wrong to have images of Jesus? What about in children's books? let me ask you this. If the reformers were right in that the people must be taught the principles of the Christian faith rather than relying on images, then shouldn't we do the same thing for our children? Now, I've been able to find a number of excellent children's books that do not contain images of Christ. Albert Moeller says in his book, Words from the Fire, if we were to know the visual image of Christ, he would have left us his visual image. He did not. And every picture portrait of him is an invention, and as an invention, it robs him of his glory. Friends, there's a reason that your Bible isn't a picture book. Faith doesn't come by pictures. It comes by words through the work of the Holy Spirit. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. We love the God we haven't seen. That's why it's called faith. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the work of the Spirit is to make the Lord Jesus Christ real to us, so do not waste your time trying to picture the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not go and look at the portraits of him that are wholly imaginary. There is a sense, I believe, which nobody should ever try to paint him. It is wrong. I do not like these paintings of Christ. They're the efforts of the natural mind. So, the first prohibition in the commandment is not to make any images of God. Well, the second prohibition, the second part of, the, of this commandment, is that we are not to worship any images. And that's part of the reason why I believe that we should avoid making images of God because images can easily lead to reverence of images. Now that's not the main reason. The, the images are, are in themselves are forbidden, but we are naturally drawn to want tangible forms of worship. God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole for the people to look at and be healed, Numbers 21.9. However, that bronze serpent became a snare to the people and they began to worship it. It had to be destroyed. It had served its purpose. It was not to be worshiped. 2 Kings 18.4. Likewise, the Ark of the Covenant represents God's relationship with his people. It symbolized his, his presence with them. I love how in, in 1 Samuel 5, when, when the ark had become a, a snare to the, to the people of Israel, when it had become a, a ta- mere talisman to them, the Philistines had, had captured it and, and brought it to, the, to their, the temple of Dagon. And you remember what happened. They, they put it next to the, the idol of Dagon, the little statue of, of Dagon. And then the next morning, they found that the statue had fallen face down in front of the ark. And then they set it up again. And the next morning it had fallen down again with its, with its head broken off and its, its arms broken off. But what happened in the people of Israel is that they, be, they began to see it again as a mere talisman. They, they, they thought, well, if the ark is with us, we're all good. But then it realized that the power was not in the ark itself, but in what the ark represented God's covenant relationship with them. Brothers and sisters, temple worship has been abrogated in Christ. The temple has has served its purpose. The the ark in the middle of the Holy of Holies has no place anymore, for, for we, the church, are the temple of Christ. Your heart is the Holy of Holies. There's no longer any place for the temple in our worship. The church has only been given two biblically sanctioned physical representations, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're visual visual representations of the believer's union with Christ. They're, They're pictures of the gospel. But they're not images per se, and we don't worship them as such. Roman Catholics, however, do worship these emblems. These, these sacraments. They, they, they believe that the elements of the Lord's Supper, that the, the bread and the wine are, are transubstantiated, that they mysteriously turn into, that the bread literally turns into the body of Christ and the wine turns literally into the blood of Christ. And for a priest to spill some of the wine was, was seen to be spilling some of the blood of Christ. And that's why for Roman Catholics, they, they view as Jesus is still being on the cross. Because the Mass is a celebration of, of Jesus being crucified all over again. In seminary, as, as part of my worship class, I had to go to a worship service from another religion and I to go to, chose to go to a Roman Catholic Mass. I was in Toronto at the time and I, I went to a, a large, ornate Catholic church in the city. And I got there early with my notepad and was, was making notes. I sat a little bit towards the back and, and I noticed that that at, that at the front there, were, um, there was a, on one side a statue of Jesus and on the side a statue of Mary and that, that pretty much everybody who, who went forward filed to either one or the other of the statues and would, would kiss the feet of the statue and many more were kissing the feet of, of the statue of Mary than were f- kissing the feet of the statue of Jesus but if this is not a worshipping of graven images I don't know what is Roman Catholics have actually taken the Second Commandment out of their catechism and divided the Tenth Commandment about coveting into two commandments so they'd have ten. Years ago at my church in Australia, not long after the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, and, and I, I, again, this, this movie I think is wrong for so many reasons, that at the very least because of the, the images of Jesus that, that are, are presented, but, but it's, it's, a, it's so full of Roman Catholic doctrine. But my more serious concern, again, was that it was a fracture of the Second Commandment. And one Sunday morning, we took the Lord's Supper every, every Sunday there, and one Sunday morning, one of the, the elders, who was a former Roman Catholic and really should have known better, on, on the screen before the Lord's Supper, showed images of the movie of the Passion of Christ. Christ. And then as I was sitting there trying to, to, to take the Lord's Supper, I had to, I had to fight to, to drive images of Jim Caviezel out of my mind. The command not to make images of God and not to worship them represents the court requirements for all true worship. Again from Edward Fisher. When the Lord condemns the chief or greatest and most evident kind of false worship, namely the worship of God at or by images, it is manifest that he forbids also the other kinds of false worship, seeing that it is the head and fountain of all the rest. Wherefore, whatsoever worships are instituted by men or do any way hinder God's true worship, they are contrary to this commandment. A.W. Pink says similarly, in the forbidding of images, God, by parity of reason, prohibits all other modes and means of worship not appointed by him. He says, every form of worship, even of the true God himself, which is contrary to or diverse from what the Lord has prescribed in his word. So this commandment forbids all false worship. You shall not worship the right God in a wrong way. Failing to perform the, the duties uh, I spoke of earlier prayer, reading the word, he- hearing the word preached, and so on is a is a fracture of the second commandment. Well, how are you doing in that? I'd hazard a guess that that many of us here are engaged in these things regularly that many if not most of us do have regular time in the word and, and regular time in prayer. and You, you come to church to, to worship together on, on Sundays and even at other times during the week. But again, this command does not merely forbid us from neglecting these things, but also in doing them for the wrong reasons. As though in doing them, we could earn points with God or, or to earn the praise of man or for any other reason other than the glory of God alone. This command forbids also doing them in the wrong way. It it forbids merely dutiful, merely habitual, distracted, joyless worship. How do you think you're doing now? All of us come under the indictment of this commandment. In addition to the, the fact that true worship of God is a glorious privilege and responsibility, the command also provides three incentives for true worship. Look at, at, again at uh, Exodus 20, verse 5. Because God is a jealous God. Because of who God is and because of who we are before him. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous. Excuse me, is jealous for the glory of his name. No image can capture God's glory. Idols are finite, they are material, physical, limited. God is infinite and omnipresent. God is spirit, and those again who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Just think practically for a moment. If you worship an idol, who made the idol? Who controls the idol? If if you can take your, if you can make your little idol and you can put your idol in a box, you have made it. You are the you are worshiping not God, but yourself. And God is also jealous, not just for his name, but also for the worship of his people. Jesus has purchased you with his blood. You are his bride. He wants your undivided love and attention and idols will distract you from that love and attention. Augustine said that there are only two basic loves, the love of God unto forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. So that's the first reason that God gives here because he is a jealous God. The second is is because he visits iniquity on the posterity of those who hate him. This is a warning here that that God will indeed curse the children of idolaters. Now this is not that, that the children of idolaters are going to be punished for their parents' sin but that they're going to follow in their parents' sinful footsteps. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins will die. As Thomas Watson says, as a son catches an hereditary disease from his father, the stone or gout, so he catches misery from him. His father's sin ruins him. When I was studying psychology as an, as an unbeliever, they would get down, bogged down into nature versus nurture debates. But they completely ignored The the most important element, what's being spoken of here, is the spiritual element. The spiritual element, that that the sins of the fathers are going to be repeated in the next generation, and the the preceding generations. And notice it's it's of those who hate me, says God. It's idolatry in any form, is hatred of God, even from those who are claiming to be worshipping God. I need to say something here that's, that's, that's very important as well to, to, for you to consider. That you're not a victim of your parents' sin. You're not a victim of your parents' sin. Now, you might be tempted in certain ways because of your parents' sin. But each one of us stands or falls alone, apart from Christ. Again, from A.W. Pink. What cause for thanksgiving unto God have those who are born of pious parents whose parents treasure up not wrath for them, but prayers? Think about the spiritual heritage that you are passing on to your children by your life, by your example, by your words, by the way that you teach them the worship and love of God. And this is the third reason for obedience because of God's steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Through Exodus 20 verse 6. Mercy is, is, is part of God's nature. It's part of who God is. God in, in showing his mercy brings glory to, to all of who he is in the whole Godhead. In Exodus 33:19, when Moses said to God, I beg you show me your glory. God said, I will show mercy. God's mercy is His glory. Mercy is, is part of His, of, of his name, of, of who He is. Exodus 34, 6, The Lord passed by and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious. If you are here as a Christian this morning, you are living here as a testimony to God's mercy. You are indeed one of the thousands of those who by God's grace and for his glory love him and keep his commandments. Now, children, you cannot ride on your parents' spiritual coattails. Again, it's each, each person stands or falls before the Lord, apart from Christ. Your parents' faith is not enough for you. Your parents' faith needs to become your faith. You need to own your relationship with God. And similarly, you can't ride on your church's spiritual coattails either. It's not enough to to go to a church where God's word is proclaimed. You need to own faith in God for yourself. Well, finally and quickly, how do you grow in worship? Well, you grow in worship. Through the practice of the duties of worship that God has given you. Worship nurtures worship. Obedience nurtures worship. Obedience to the command also fosters obedience to the command. The regular heartfelt practice of of prayer, study the word and fellowship and so on, help you to grow in your obedience and your worship of God. Study and memorize passages that, that speak of, of your duties before God. Ask God to forgive you for your failures to, to walk in those duties. And ask God to help you through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to help you to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Spend time in fellowship with, with others who, who love God and are going, are going to spur you on to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10.25 But brothers and sisters, the greatest way that you can grow in worship is by growing in your love towards Christ through the gospel. Again, Exodus 20 verse 6b, God is showing mercy to those who love me and keep my commandments. So worship is once again the solution for worship. True worship is the solution for false worship. The the woman who loves her husband will not easily commit adultery. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. The gospel of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. As he died the death that you deserved. As he lived the life that you could never live, not even for one second. When we talk about, about the image and likeness of God, remember that you are made in the image of God. Genesis 1:26 and 27. But that image has been effaced, it's been marred by sin. We need another. We need one who perfectly is the image of God. So look to Christ as the fulfillment of the second commandment. Now, we don't know what Jesus looked like, but he has uniquely fulfilled the second commandment. John 14, 9, where Jesus says says to Philip, have you been with me so long, Philip, and, and you don't recognize me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you have seen Jesus with spiritual eyes, you have seen the Father. You have seen the Father. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus fully obeyed the second commandment as he did all the commandments. So then, let us offer to God through Christ acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Let's pray. Glorious God, we praise you for the privilege of knowing you of worshiping you, of bringing glory to your name. But Lord, we confess that we have never done this as we should. Because of the work of your Holy Spirit, this is our desire. Lord, because of the work of your Holy Spirit, we are growing in our worship of you. But Lord, we do not, we cannot, we never fully obey. We never fully worship but we praise you that you sent your son who did. Your son who always loves you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel. May the gospel cause us to worship you for who you are and all that you've done for us in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.